Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. This episode we're going to be looking at The Winning Shot, a short story written in 1882 and published anonymously in 1883. It tells the story of a young woman's encounter with a sinister mesmerist, Dr Octavius Gaster. So Paul, this was uh, one of your suggestions for the podcast. Why did you pick The Winning Shot? Uh, The Winning Shot is a particularly interesting example of an early work by Doyle, um, showing the development of his style. You you can see the future way his writing's going. He's still not totally certain, but there is a confidence in the writing. Um, But it's also the the, the subject matter. Uh, 1882, we're in the early days of Doyle's interest in spiritualism and matters occult, which really come to the fore in this story. Uh, It's also very interesting in that there's a a foreshadowing of certain Sherlockian elements as well. Mm. So it's it's got everything in there that way. But it's also interesting in that it was published in 1883 and then never republished in Doyle's lifetime. Um, and it, it's one that's it's quite fascinating to speculate as to, as to why it was that this story just wasn't reprinted while, while he was uh, still alive. Yeah, it does seem to have passed most people by this one. So um, before we get into the story in full detail, we'll give you a very quick synopsis of, uh, of the winning shot. The story begins with a newspaper cutting that cautions the public against Dr. Octavius Gaster, a Swedish traveller described as being of great height with flaxen hair and a deep scar upon the left cheek. The advertisement was placed by the narrator, Miss Lottie Underwood, a young woman who lost her fiancé on the eve of their wedding. Lottie's story takes place in and around Toynbee Hall at Rober in Devon, the home of Colonel Pillar, whose eldest son Charlie is Lottie's fiancé. One evening, Charlie and Lottie walk onto the moors to enjoy the last hours of daylight. They're startled by a figure silhouetted against the moon on a rocky ridge high above them. The strange, cadaverous man approaches and introduces himself as Octavius Gaster. Though Charlie is at first angry with the man, for startling Lottie and probably for startling himself, he invites the stranger back to the hall rather than leave him to his fate on the moor. On their way back, Gaster tells of his recent travels and how he survived at sea in an open boat. His companion on that occasion, desperate to avoid starvation, died of blood loss after cutting off and consuming his own ears. Gaster himself says that he survived by the power of his will alone. At the hall, Gaster quickly ingratiates himself with the household, with his stories and immense knowledge of the world. Lottie's mother, however, notices Gaster taking an healthy interest in her daughter. Lottie is dismissive, but still harbours suspicions of the stranger, which are heightened when she chances upon him rocking in silent mirth at a newspaper article. It tells of the death of a sea captain who had an altercation with a ship's surgeon he regarded as a necromancer and devil worshipper. If that were not sinister enough, shortly after, Gaster gets into an argument with Charlie and his friends over the existence of the supernatural. Lottie's mother is correct, and soon Gaster makes his advance on Lottie, offering untold glory, riches and power. She is saved by Charlie, who fights Gaster and draws first blood before the malevolent visitor escapes. The mood of the hall lifts, 
But Gaster is not gone, and the next day Lottie sees him in the crowd at a local rifle match. When Charlie, one of the team captains, steps up to take the winning shot, Gaster is seen staring into space, mouthing silently and foaming at the mouth. At that moment, Charlie is startled to see a figure closely resembling himself standing in front of the target. The crowd can see nothing and persuade him he's imagining things. He takes the shot and drops dead on the spot. But Gaster's revenge is not yet complete, for there's one more event to come. And we'll get to that towards the end of the podcast. So that's a bit of a taste of the story, but before we get too far into the details, um, Paul, can you tell us a bit about um, the writing and the publication history? Well, the the story was actually published in July 1883 in Bo Bell's magazine, uh, but it had been written uh, about a year earlier, probably June, July 1882, um, when his life was 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 changing, he'd uh, moved very recently to um, South Sea, Portsmouth, to to try and set up on his own as a doctor, and was um, writing in his spare time. Th- this story uh, comes at a time when he he's obviously in flux professionally, um, but there's also a degree of of he's in in flux in his personal life as well. Um, he, he's he's trying to es- establish himself in 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 this in this new life, and he also looks back on his old life in in Edinburgh, the the, the family life, uh, and and the, there's elements of that also enter into the story, which we'll go into as we discuss uh, the uh, the main uh, villainous uh, protagonist of of or antagonist, I should probably say, uh, of the of the story. Mm. So it's in late spring 1882 that Doyle moves to Plymouth, where he's in practice with Dr. George Budd, an interesting character who appears in in Doyle's memoirs, uh, and also in disguised form in the Stark Munro letters. And and the short story as well, uh, Crab's Practice. But Budd actually kicks Doyle out after about six weeks and suggests that he will help him, give him some money to set up in practice elsewhere. Um, in fact, that money I don't think ever really materialises. It's a no. He, he promises he promises Doyle a pound a week. I think it was that's right um, to to set up on his own. Uh, and then when Doyle begins to settle in Portsmouth, Bud springs this on him that he's actually not going to give him his money because he's supposedly found a letter from Doyle's mother criticising Bud and and basically saying that that Bud is an out and out rogue. That's right. So Doyle makes a trip to Tavistock on the western fringes of Dartmoor to. Um, look for a possible place to set up practice, and in the end, he actually settles on South Sea instead of uh, Tavistock. He actually complains, I think, that Tavistock has too many doctors in 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 one of the one of the writings of the time. But it's interesting because this is a point in time where Doyle has actually gone to Dartmoor, which is the setting of uh, the winning shot, and also the setting of several other Doyle stories, most notably the Hound. Yes, this, this is this is the first of. of uh, five different stories that that Doyle set on Dartmoor. This this, this is the first. He wrote two um, Brigadier Gerard stories: How the King Held the Brigadier, uh, which was published in 1895, and How the Brigadier Triumphed in England, also known as the Brigadier in England, uh, in 1903. Uh, of course, besides the Hand of the Baskervilles, we also have Silver Blaze from the Sherlocking Canon, which is also set uh, on Dartmoor. Mm. We know he writes. Uh, the winning shot around June, July, eighteen eighty-two, from his letters, and he actually describes this story in quite glowing terms. I have a wonderful story on hand, he says. The winning shot about mesmerism and murder and chemical magnetism and a man eating his own ears because he was hungry. And clearly, that point has really stood in Doyle's imagination. Mm. It's the thing that uh, leaps out for him at that point in time. 
but he has quite a difficult time getting this story published. Yes, because uh, w- one of his other letters of time, he, he describes this, this very ghastly, animal-magnetic, vampire sort of tale, uh, and says, I sent the winning shot to, to, to Hogg, which is James Hogg, the proprietor of, of London Society, uh, another very popular magazine. Uh, and then he says, it is a capital story, and a seven-pounder if he takes it. Hogg didn't take it, um, and, and Doyle actually sold it in December 1882 to Bow Bells, and he received half that amount, uh, just three guineas. Um, he, he did write something else around this time, which is, um, provides a bit of a side note on, on this. He's very interested in photography and wrote a, an article called Dry Plates on a Wet Moor about his trip to Tavistock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually there's a description in there that relates to the, uh, the wildlife on Dartmoor, which is lifted and appears almost uh, word for word actually in the, in the winning shot itself. So the winning shot is then published uh, in Bowbells in July 1883. But like you say, it wasn't really picked up and, and uh, repeated elsewhere, except there was a pirated edition, a very peculiar pirated edition, which included uh, supposedly a, a story called An Actor's Duel written by Doyle. But in fact, it wasn't An Actor's Duel written by Doyle. It was An Actor's Duel written by somebody called Campbell Ray Brown. Um, Doyle had written a story called An Actor's Duel, but it was actually... Um, printed as the, trage- the tragedians the tragedians yes. that's it the tragedians so yes yeah, so so this has a uh, this is a story that is written um at a, a an early stage in doyle's career and you can see him honing his skills as a writer but also learning his way around the publishing industry at this point in time trying to get the best mm-hmm. deal he possibly can for this story but actually it, it sort of disappears off the radar after it's published it doesn't really reappear uh, in many other places. Yeah, it's, it's quite an odd thing that this, this story essentially um, disappears after, after its publication in, in Bow Bells. Um, Doyle was still thinking about it the following year, uh, because in February 1884, in, in one of his letters, uh, he, he was, said he was thinking of gathering some of his stories together into a collection which he provisionally titled Twilight Tales, uh, and he did include the winning shot in in his selection, but this this uh, this particular anthology never appeared, and uh, the the story itself seems to have gone out of Doyle's mind, uh, whether just through forgetfulness or or through uh, a, a deliberate wish to to suppress it, and it, it wasn't included in in his uh, anthology Tales of Terror and Mystery in 1922 or Tales of Twilight and the Unseen in 1922. Um, and so they were later put into the, the the complete Conan Doyle stories, which has been the backbone of most of the non-Sherlockian stories we know. Uh, so it, it's it's dipped out of sight, and and it is it is a real shame that this has happened. So it, it hopefully hopefully people will 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 pick up on the story again, and and it will become more widely known. And and people can pick this up now in printed form because it was in the Oxford World Classics edition. Um, of Gothic tales, with an introduction by Daryl Jones uh, and some and some footnotes from from Daryl Jones as well. So people can actually pick up this story in print uh, today. So let's talk a bit about the story itself. And the most obvious question to begin with is: Is Octavius Gaster a vampire? It's it's a kind of a funny one this because Gaster when it, when he first appears. Uh, he certainly fits the sort of um, literary literary stereotype of the the vampire. Uh, you got his his first appearance. Uh, the moon was just topping the ridge behind, 
and the gaunt, angular outlines of the stranger stood out hard and clear against its silvery radiance. There was something ghastly in the sudden and silent appearance of this solitary wanderer, especially when coupled with the weird nature of the scene. Uh, and then it goes on. Weird as his appearance had been when we first caught sight of him, the impression was intensified rather than removed by closer acquaintance. The moon shining full upon him revealed a long, thin face of ghastly pallor, the effect being increased by its contrast with the flaring green necktie which he wore. A scar upon his cheek had healed badly and caused a nasty pucker at the side of his mouth, which gave his whole countenance a most distorted expression, more particularly when he smiled. There was something in his angular proportions and the bloodless face, which, taken in conjunction with the black cloak which fluttered from his shoulders, irresistibly reminded me of a blood-sucking species of bat, which Jack Daisby had brought from Japan. Mm. So you've got some very obvious stuff there. And, and, mm. and before Charlie and Lottie go on to the moor, her mother says, put something round your throat, dear. And then Charlie later on goes, wrap the shawl well round your neck, Lottie. So there's all these mm. very obvious vampire references. Mm. Um, but we later find out he, 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 he isn't a, a blood-sucking vampire. One of the stories I think Doyle was inspired by uh, is a story called The Mysterious Stranger mm. um, by a German writer, Karl von Wachsmann, uh, which was first published in German in 1844 uh, anonymously. Uh, and then an anonymous English translation appeared in 1854 in Chambers' repository. Uh, its vampire uh, is a character called Count Azor von Klapka, and I think there's a certain phonetic resonance with Octavius Gaster. Yes. <laughs> uh, and he's described thus. He was a man of about 40, tall and extremely thin. His features could not be termed uninteresting, but the expression was on the whole anything but benevolent. There was contempt and sarcasm in the cold grey eyes, whose glance, however, was at times so piercing that no one could endure it long. So like Gaster, we have grey eyes, we mm. have, a, have a, a piercing a piercing stare. Uh, von Klatter's, um complexion is also described as, 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 as pallid, like, um, like Gaster's. Um, now, the, the, the story having been published uh, in Chambers' repository five years before Doyle was born... Um, could be a problem, but but we do know uh, that Doyle, as a boy, took an interest in in gothic and and uh, sensationist literature. Yes, there's examples of that coming from his time at Stonyhurst. Yes, um, strangely enough, at, at school, his his Jesuit masters seem to have encouraged gothic tastes. Um, one of the letters home to his mother when when Doyle was eleven says, "The other day, Mister Splain read us a jolly story." Translated from the German, perhaps you have read it. It was called The Avenger, about a lot of horrible murders. Uh, and then later on, <laughs> he, he says, uh, I am so glad I read most of the books we have at home, because the English theme of last term, for which 100 marks is given, was taken from one of them called Blackwood Tales. The name of the story was The Iron Shroud. And this was an 1830 uh, gothic story by, by William Mudford. So mm. he was he was well versed in, in this sort of material. Yeah. And this suggests at home they had at least one volume of, of Blackwood's magazine, which was renowned for its, its gothic stories. So perhaps they had several volumes and uh, of that and different magazines. Uh, and Doyle could perhaps easily uh, have picked up The Mysterious Stranger. Yes, and and... On top of that, I just wonder about some of the other traits that we see in Gaster and how far they were actually established tropes of, of vampire fiction at this point in time. So Gaster is quite a charming figure. Um, he is able to ingratiate himself in the household quite quickly. He 
he clearly has mesmeric qualities, mm. as we, we see several times in the references to the eyes in the description. He's able to calm a dog at one point. Well, this again fits into the uh, the, the tradition. Uh, Azor von Klatke is able to um, control an entire pack of wolves. Mm. Uh, and as we know later on in, in Dracula, Count Dracula is also in command of animals in the same sort of way. Yes. And one of the other things that we see in the story is that uh, Gaster is invited into the household, and I wonder how far that is a trope of Victorian uh, vampire fiction. Uh, again, it's something that, that does appear in, in The Mysterious Stranger. Mm. Um, Azor von Klatke, when he goes to um, the castle of I think it's, uh, Count von Farnenberg, he has to be invited in. Uh, and the very typical thing I'd like to just, just point to with, with um, Gaster is that he's Swedish. Yes, which is a very strange. Most vampire fiction, they were Central or Eastern European in this sort of tradition. Uh, the only Swedish vampire, other Swedish vampire I can think of in this sort of period, is uh, Count Magnus in uh, M.R. James's James. short story mm. from 1904. And there's another way in which uh, Gaster is a very atypical vampire, in that we discover he doesn't know about picnics. Um, because there's a moment with Lottie and Charlie, they're arranging a picnic. Gaster says. What is it that you call nitpick? And uh, the least vampiric phrase I think you can imagine, I can make what you call a salad. Perhaps Count Dracula could make a salad as well. He has no servants. That's a good point. He's got no servants. Absolutely. And Doyle is interested in the notion of vampires. We see that appear in other works as well. But again, this is not really a blood-sucking vampire. The, the only example of him directly drawing on the blood-sucking vampire is, is probably in The Sussex Vampire. In and the that's Charles done Country. ironically. And that's done ironically. That's a pastiche, really. I mean, the whole idea is like you're wrong-footing the audience. Mm. Um, and, and Doyle is very good at wrong-footing the audience. He, he does that a bit with um, this story as well, as we will come to uh, when we come to the ending of, of this story too. But if we think about some of the other writings by Doyle that touch on sort of vampiric-type characters... Um, the most obvious one is Miss Penclosa in The Parasite. Mm. Um, and that's, again, a very different type of vampire. It's much more uh, energy or emotional vampire. Mm. And and the same with um, a story which was published in the year after um, The Winning Shot with uh, John Barrington Cowles, where you almost get a female version of Octavius Gaster uh, in the person of Kate Northcott. Yes, that's a, and that's a terrific story, mm. actually. We'll have to do that one at some mm. point as well. And talking of the Sussex vampire, there are quite a few incidental details here that have connections to the Sherlockian canon. So one of them is uh, the fact that Harry Pillar, who is one of the um, sons of Colonel Pillar, has a visitor from university at Cambridge who's called uh, Trevor. And it's actually Trevor's dog that Gaster um, hypnotises. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it it reminded me very much of that moment in The Gloria Scott that... um, Holmes had a university friend uh, who um, who had a, a dog. Trevor was the only man I knew, and that only through the ex- accident of his bull terrier freezing onto my ankle one morning as I went down to chapel. Um, I mean, the, the the obvious point there is that uh, you know, in uh, in the winning shot, Doyle is making reference to somebody called Trevor, who is a university student from Cambridge. So it may well be mm. that. Uh, um, when Doyle is writing about Victor Trevor, he's thinking about Cambridge as well. But uh, with that fuse well and truly lit, I will stand well back from the Sherlockian argument that will ensue. Um, we, we also have with, with Towser is described in The Winning Shot by, by his owner Trevor as being a nipper. 
So he's nipper. another dog who will likely to freeze onto your leg if you're not <laughs> he is, careful. He will indeed. Mm-hmm. And you've given the description of Octavius Gaster himself and the scar, and that reminded me very much of Hugh Boone as well in The Man with the Twisted Lip. Um, but the one that I think is a really delightful little touch is that there's a, um, there is actually a character in this towards the end of the rifle match called Farmer Watson. And uh, and I'm going to give a, a, a warning to any listener from Devon here because the actual sentence is written in dialect. <laughs> He's looking at Gaster and says he bain't foaming like Farmer Watson's dog to bullpup what died mad of the hydropathics. <laughs> so we know from study in Scarlet that Watson um, kept a bullpup, supposedly. But here you've got a, a character called Watson and a bullpup in the same, same section. Um, and then probably more substantial Sherlockian connections, the fact that you have this terrible story of the ears reminds me a bit of the cardboard box. But probably the most obvious connection is actually the hound is the Dartmoor setting and the fact that the first time you see Octavius Gaster he is silhouetted on the top of a rocky tour looking down on Charlie with the moon behind him and in fact if you find the Bobell's first edition first printing of it in the magazine the uh, top half of the first page of the printing is in fact the image of the silhouetted man on the on the rocky ridge and that scene is lifted in, in the hound where Holmes appears silhouetted on the tour um, to uh, Henry Baskerville and to, and to Watson. And the other story that's worth uh, a brief nod is The Illustrious Client, because while it's not a vampire story per se, the character of Baron Adalbert Gruner is another um, character very much in the same uh, vein, if you can use that <laughs> term with vampire fiction, in the same vein as, uh, uh, as some of the other sort of energy vampires that you might see in Doyle's, in Doyle's writings. Yeah, Gruner is is very much, and a, a, again, you you look at the the names, Adalbert Gruner, Octavius Gaster. It's got the, this the similarity is is there once more. We have this sinister mesmeric European coming in and and um, trying to seduce a, a, an innocent young English girl, uh, and it, well, in in Gruner's case, you know, stopped in his tracks. Um, but but it it also there there are an interesting um, pair of stories to 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 compare. Uh, that is the winning shot and the illustrious client, uh, in that they show the the real advance in Doyle's writing. How what a sophisticated writer he did become. Mm. Uh, if you look at the way he portrays Gaster and then compare that to Gruner, he's become far more nuanced, far more subtle. Yes, uh, in, in the way these characters are are presented and 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 far more realistic. Gruner is a very, very convincing villain, uh, whereas Gaster definitely still has traces of the, uh, almost the pantomime villain. Yes, he's very, very much melodrama. Mm. And we think we might have found a more personal inspiration for the character of of Octavius Gaster, Uh, and that's in the real-life personage of Brian Charles Waller. Yes, um, Brian Charles Waller was uh, an older Edinburgh student, uh, who moved in with the, the Doyle family as a lodger in, in the uh, early 1870s. And eventually he ended up actually paying the, paying the rent um, for the Doyles uh, because he was, he was from uh, a, a well-off family. Uh, and the Doyles themselves were in some ways going down in the world at this time because of the uh, growing alcoholism of um, Arthur Conan Doyle's father, Charles Altamont Doyle. Uh, and as as Waller's influence um, on the family grew, Arthur seems to have had a certain degree of, of resentment 
mm. against Brian Charles Waller because Arthur, being the eldest son, believed it was it, it should be his place uh, to actually become essentially the head of the household, and he, he admired Waller. There's no doubt about that, but it was it was a very fractious relationship. Um, and in early 1882, not long before he wrote the uh, the winning shot, he wrote a letter to his sister Lottie. Um, which seems to indicate that he'd actually had some sort of great altercation um, with with Waller, which might even have involved a degree of fisticuffs. Mm. Uh, the, the, mm. the language is a, a little bit ambiguous, so we're not entirely sure. Um, but this could have been then played out in literature in the person of Gaster, who is the outsider who, who becomes the cuckoo in the nest, welcomed into... Um, the, the pillar family household and uh, taking over in many ways and, and you can sort of feel Doyle taking out a degree of resentment uh, against uh, against Waller with this uh, and one interesting um, aspect of this is is in the name Gaster uh, for, for the character uh, because Doyle also wrote another story uh, called The Surgeon of Gaster Fell yeah. and yeah. Gaster Fell is actually based on Mason Gill which was the family seat of, of Brian Charles Waller so there's, there, there's, um, there's definite hints going on Yeah and it would be around about this time I think that um, Doyle's mother moved to Mason Gill uh, to live on the Waller estate This is also a story that includes a, a quite early reference to spiritualism um, and we often associate spiritualism with Doyle's later life because it became such a profound focus for him, particularly after the First World War. Um, but this story actually does show that he has knowledge of spiritualism and indeed interest in, in the topic. Um, there is a moment uh, where um, Octavius Gaster is talking to Charlie and his friends, and he says... Um, who that has read Steinberg's book upon spirits, or that by the eminent American Madame Crow can doubt it, did not Gustav von Spee meet his brother Leopold in the streets of Strasbourg, the same brother having been drowned three months before in the Pacific, did not Hume the spiritualist in open daylight float above the housetops of Paris? Gaster is instantly going into a defence of the existence of spirits and uh, uh, from beyond the grave and uh, Doyle was interested in spiritualism at this time although his knowledge was quite uh, um, quite basic uh, while he is in um, South Sea he befriends Henry Ball um, who was uh, an important figure interested in the paranormal uh, and a year later he, be he also befriends Major General Alfred Wilkes Drayson of the Royal Artillery who became a big influencer on uh, Doyle's spiritualist journey um, so it's interesting that in this story, in this very really early story, we do get some casual throwaway mentions to um, spiritualism. Although Doyle was not all that accurate with the with the description uh, that he gave. No, he, he'd already um, he'd started his reading, but he particularly at this stage in his writing, you will find in a number of stories he does like to name drop um, mm. and mm. he does like to show off about his knowledge. But unfortunately, his knowledge didn't always always match up to this and it, it's a bit of a grab bag um, and and he does make some of this stuff up it, it appears that um, Steinberg is a made-up name um, and when he talks about Gustav von Spee meeting his brother Leopold that doesn't seem to be uh, an actual incident it's something he, he 
fictionalised, but these sort of stories we're, we're, we're certainly doing the rounds. I mean, there is a story um, of, of this uh, sort of thing happening in, in York Minster in, in the, uh, the mid-19th century when a, a lady is supposed to have encountered her brother's ghost at the moment of his death. So these, these things were, were, were there in, in, the, in the kind of popular culture and, and Doyle's picking up on this. And, and just as an interesting aside as well with the uh, von Spey, um, certainly fictionalised, we, we would think, because one of the next stories Doyle published, uh, An Exciting Christmas Eve, actually has the main protagonist uh, called Otto von Spey. So, mm. so he's reusing mm. that name mm. very quickly. Mm. I mean, he does actually have a couple of other names in there that are, are genuine, although his mm. details are slightly off. So the, the American um, Madame Crow is actually a reference most likely to Catherine Crow, who was was not American? She was she was English, um, but she wrote a, a, a very influential work in 1848 called *The Night Side of Nature* or *Ghosts and Ghost Seers*, which is a survey of the supernatural and uh, and it includes a, a chapter on doppelgangers or doubles and also on uh, the power of of will. And uh, it's quite likely that Doyle would have read that book at this point in time. The the other um, reference there is to Daniel Douglas Hume who was a famous medium, uh, originally from Edinburgh, and, uh, and moved to America in the uh, late 1830s when he was in his, uh, in his early years. And um, Hume makes his appearance in Doyle's um, History of Spiritualism uh, a little bit later. Well, uh, one thing with, with, with Mrs. Crow as well, that Doyle may have heard of her in in his youth uh, because she did at one point live in Edinburgh mm. and she in in 1854 uh, she wandered around the streets of Edinburgh carrying only a card case and handkerchief uh, <laughs> and that was it um, she was promptly arrested and later committed to an asylum um, but treated privately and whatever problem she had seems to have been cured but but if this is part of edinburgh legend he may have he may have heard of it yeah a, a not notorious celebrity mm -hmm. we we have the um the incidence of of um gaster reading these books or quoting these books but he's also surprised um unexpectedly by charlie and lottie while they're on a walk He's reading a, a, a book which he usually thrust into his pocket the moment he's seen with it, but they, they actually see it, and it's an Arabic book yes. on occultism, which, which gives him a sinister air. This, this is almost like a, a, a sort of early version of, of H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon by, mm. by, the, the, by the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazrat. So it's, it's obviously thrown in to give him a bit of a, a sinister, strange air. Uh, and this is also stressed with the newspaper cutting he keeps, which is obviously about himself, uh, about a ship's doctor being apparently uh, responsible in some mysterious way for the for the uh, the death of the ship's captain, who had accused the doctor of being a, a satanist and necromancer. Uh, and and you can't help but wonder: is this is this Doyle kind of poking fun at himself in, yes. in a way, in that he'd been a ship's doctor? And if he was reading these kind of books when he was a ship's doctor talking about this stuff, he could have had uh, jibes and jokes thrown at him by the crews of these ships. Absolutely, yeah, very good point, very good point. So the story itself is um, a very early work, and it is quite a naive work in its own way, um, not without its charm, um, but also quite melodramatic, as we've said. It's, uh, yeah, it's not got the great subtlety of, of later pieces of work but very enjoyable nevertheless. Um, but it does have some interesting things going on in in the way the story is constructed. One of the most peculiar aspects is that there's a female narrator, mm. which is very unusual for Doyle. 
Yes, it's. Um, I'm, I think it's probably the only time he he structured an entire story uh, around this this narrative style. I wonder if he might possibly have been influenced at this point uh, by the, the the writing of uh, the great Irish um, mm. sensationalist uh, Sheridan Lefanu. Mm. Uh, whose most famous novel, uh, Uncle Silas, had been published in 1864, uh, and that's about a threatened heiress, uh, and it's written entirely in the the first person from a female perspective. Uh, and we know that Doyle had certainly read this book because uh, he cribbed aspects of its plot for his later novel, The Firm of Girdleston. That's right, but for all this is a, um early work, and as I say, it is a bit of apprenticeship work to some extent. There is some very nice uh, um, writing within here. I'm particularly struck by uh, that characteristic trope of Doyle, that rapid characterization, particularly of Colonel Pillar. Lottie says in the description of the household, I must not, however, forget the gallant old warrior who was our host with his time-honoured jokes and his gout and his harmless affectation of ferocity, which is a terrific shorthand mm. for this character. I mean, instantly within, you know, 30 words, you have a fantastic depiction of, of Colonel Pillar himself. And then you've also got a, a later description of uh, Lottie's mother. Finally, there was my mother, dearest of old ladies, beaming at us through her gold-rimmed spectacles, anxiously soothing every little difficulty in the way of the two young couples, and never weary of detailing to them her own doubts and fears and perplexities. When that gay young blood, Mr Nicholas Underwood, that would be her husband, came a-wooing into the provinces and forswore Crockford's and Tattersall's for the sake of the country parson's daughter. Crockford being a club known for gambling and Tattersall being a guide to the turf. So there's a fantastic immediate throwaway um, background references to uh, to things that would have been uh, um, easily consumed by the readers of the time. And It's it's, it's the economy of style, isn't it, that... that, that Comes and he actually says um, when this story is being rejected, uh, he talks about this that he fears it's being rejected because his style is economical and not not wordy. Yes, he uh, does. Which at this point is still fashionable. I mean, I've, I've just mentioned Sheridan Lefanu, and this this is one of the real differences uh, between Doyle and Lefanu is is Doyle is economical in his style, and Lefanu is is very very wordy, very prolix. Yeah, and and it is actually it's a rejection letter he gets from the editor of Cornhill, mm. and he he writes to I think it's, he writes to his mother saying what a fool that editor of Cornhill is. He mistakes originality for crudeness. I affect those brusque, crisp sentences which he thinks are defects. Mm. I mean, I think now anybody reading Doyle would regard that as probably being the hallmark oh, of his time, uh, style, and actually absolutely the strength. The other thing that's really nice in this story is the um, is the use of horror. And that quote that we gave earlier from, from one of the letters, he absolutely delights in the story of the man eating his own ears. And there's a, there a great article I found online um, from Charles Prepolek reviewing the winning shot in 2016, makes a suggestion that Gaster may have dined on his unfortunate companion to survive the trip. It might, might not be that he actually survived on power of will alone. Um, so, so Doyle actually has this wonderful moment in it, which is just pure, pure horror, and it is genuinely shocking when you read it in the story. Um, to the point where actually you think about the sanity of Charlie and Lottie, who are walking with this character back to their house, and they, <laughs> they don't at any point think uh, perhaps we shouldn't really be taking this man back with us. This, this is the schoolboy who was brought up mm, on Blackwoods and Poe. Absolutely, <laughs> it is. Yeah, and the other thing that I think is 
quite interesting in this story is Doyle's use of foreshadowing. He is constantly foreshadowing throughout this story, um, right from the very beginning. The fact that the opening is actually this newspaper clipping and this casual reference to the loss of Lottie's fiance on the eve of the wedding. Um, but there are other things in the story, uh, and there's a moment where they come across a, um, a crossroads, and uh, and Lottie says that you know little did they know that their decision mm-hmm. would have a profound influence you know that which way they would go would have a profound influence on 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 the outcome for themselves and their lives but is that actually true because gaster's first words yes when he appears Mm. which are he says i thought it i thought it and they're quite peculiar first words Mm. aren't they so um there are a number of different possible interpretations of that. Uh, it, it may give an idea that, that I thought it, I thought it means I thought it was her mm. and that he's fated to meet Lottie, in mm. which case this kind of idea of the road we took uh, sealed our fate. Mm. Uh, might not be true, but, but Doyle makes none of this clear. No, and uh, actually it's quite quite a nice thing about this and, and mm. other stories that actually there's a lot left to the imagination. Yeah. Mm. And, and the next story we're going to come on to is a classic case in point for that uh, another element of, of um, foreshadowing that, that appears in the story the story plays a, a very much um, on the, the the popular 19th century trope of, of, of doubles yes uh, and and when um, Charlie and Lottie first see Gaster at, at the, their favorite trysting spot uh, you you have him being seen ab- ab- above us towered two great columns of rock so we have have a doubling yeah, of the, the doubling. columns. We have the, the names of the lovers, Lottie and Charlie, Charlotte and Charles. We have two couples, Lottie and Charlie, and Jack Daisby and Fanny Pillar, who is Charlie's sister. All this is also foreshadowing the end of the story, which does involve a double. Yes. Uh, in, in which, in the winning shot itself, somehow Gaster projects an astral version of Charlie Pillar, which he shoots, and he shoots himself by shooting his own astral projection mm. or his own astral double. Mm. And that um, topic of doubles is one of the topics of the Night Side of Terror of the um, Catherine Crow mm. book that uh, is directly referenced in the in the paragraph on spiritualism. Mm. Uh, and the the other thing I think about the foreshadowing is that that's constantly building up tension throughout the story. You you really do, you know that this is going to lead towards something horrible, but he then completely wrong foots you. So, in the synopsis, we didn't go quite as far as the final incident, but the story actually ends with a footnote, and the footnote is not written by Lottie Underwood, but written by Lottie's mother Emily. And uh, and this is what it says. Within a fortnight after writing this narrative, my poor daughter disappeared. All search has failed to find her. A porter at the railway station has deposed to having seen a young lady resembling her description get into a first-class carriage with a tall, thin gentleman. It is, however, too ridiculous to suppose that she can have eloped after her recent grief and without my having had any suspicions. The detectives are, however, working out the clue. So... Gaster does get uh, Lottie Underwood um, and they disappear on the train at the end of the story. So that brings us to the end of the winning shot. If you want to get more information, go to doingsofdoyle.com where we'll have the show notes um, and you can leave us a comment or question there or you can contact us on Twitter at doingsofdoyle. Um, Next time, what are we going to be doing, Paul? 
We're going to be doing The Captain of the Pole Star, uh, which is uh, one of Conan Doyle's greatest ghost stories set in the wilderness of the Arctic. Brilliant. So we hope you will join us for that podcast next month. In the meantime, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. So let's talk a bit about the story itself now. And the most obvious question that really leaps out uh, reading this one again is, is Octavius Vampire... <laughs> a gaster. <laughs> is, is, is he a gaster? <laughs> is, is Octavius Vampire a gaster? <laughs>